everybody. This is Shaber Shaberi. We're back here at the Shaber Show. I am uh, pretty excited about our next guest. He does have local roots in San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, he's also had uh, experience living abroad in China. He's an author. He's a fellow um, of the Asia Program at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Matt Sheehan, um, really excited to have you here and talk about the U.S.-China and how that relates in the technology sector. Thanks so much for being part of uh, the Shaber Show. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, happy to be here and happy to chat. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is interesting times with the Olympics um, and what's going on, but um, would love to hear kind of a quick background about yourself um, and, uh, you know, how did, how did you get into all, all this? Yeah. So um, I mostly grew up in the Bay Area, at least for middle school, high school. I, I was born in Chicago, lived in the Chicago suburbs up through elementary school and then came out to California where my family has roots. My dad has roots. Um, his his family goes back to like the 1870s or so in San Francisco. And wow. growing up, yeah, it was always like the, the great like family lore all took place <laughs> in San Francisco labor movement and stuff like that. So I always wanted to come yeah. to the Bay Area. Um, came out middle school, high school, and then ended up staying for college. I went to college at Stanford, um, which was right across the street from my high school in Palo Alto. Okay. And yeah, I mean, all through that time, honestly, I had uh, nothing, no special interest in China or in Asia or in technology. Um, you know, I was just, yeah, being a normal kid. And it wasn't until about halfway through college that I went and spent a summer in Beijing as like a, a, a camp counselor at an academic camp that I just was kind of blown away by by the life and the vitality and, and stuff in China. And so I spent about eight weeks there that summer. This is the summer of 2008. So right before the Olympics. And uh, yeah, I just knew I knew right away that after I graduated, I wanted to move back. I wanted to learn more about the country and get engaged. Nice. And did you, uh, Sino, did you actually enjoy some of the Olympics or did you actually uh, get in and out before I saw one soccer game in Shanghai. It was, I was in Beijing in kind of like June through very beginning of August, I think. I, I'm pretty sure the Olympics started on August 8th. It was like 8, 8, 2008. So, you know, lucky on yeah. the Chinese numbers. And, uh, yeah, yeah I, after spending six weeks in Beijing, I spent five days in Xi'an and five days in Shanghai and I caught a soccer game there. Um, but yeah, I missed, I, I sort of left Beijing before like the opening ceremony and all that hoopla. Okay, great. And what, what did you actually, uh, so you, you mentioned Bay Area Roots and then you had to Stanford. What did you study at Stanford? Uh, I studied political science, um, which... You know, I was I was interested in politics and and government and and international stuff, um, but didn't have a much of a focus. The Stanford Political Science Program happens to be, at least at that time, a decade ago, happened to be very focused on like nuclear weapons and nuclear nonproliferation. It was, I think, just a little bit of a hangover from from the eighties and uh, you know Soviet Union, Soviet studies stuff like that. So yeah, I studied a little bit of everything, some uh, a lot of philosophy, some political philosophy, but yeah, it was kind of amazing. I went through four years of political science with a focus on international relations, and I basically never took a single class on China, which you know, in retrospect, is a uh, uh, <laughs> not great for a program at that point in time. Yeah, no, it's funny. I, mean, uh, I think the shift really happened in the early two thousands, and uh, the Beijing Olympics was like a like a wake up for everybody to see, wow, China is here to stay. And 
um, you know, right after that, I felt like the tech scene there has really taken off. So when, uh, when did you move to China? Where did you live and how long did you yeah. live for? So I moved in 2010, which was right after I graduated undergrad. And, um, I first moved to Xi'an. So I, I spent my time in Beijing and then I'd spent five days in Xi'an on my first kind of go around. Um, I liked it. I didn't, I wasn't really, I wasn't too specific in where I wanted to go. Basically just went where I found a job teaching English. Okay. Um, Where's Xi'an exa- exactly in China? And, Xi'an is like kind of in the dead center. It's sort of the dividing line between the eastern half of the country, you know, the more developed half and the western half of the country. So um, got it. Yeah, it's kind of like the one of the last big cities, at least um, in the sort of northern part of China, one of the last big cities before you get out to the much more wide open and, and less populated West. Um, I often, you know, in terms of like an American city, I, I don't know exactly what to compare it to. It's not quite a Chicago, uh, much bigger than a Denver, but. Anyway, um, I, I really loved it. I, I, I lived there for a year, um, teaching English, studying Chinese like crazy, trying to learn as much as I could about the country. And yeah, I, I just I, I had an amazing time. I thought it was about China was endlessly fascinating. I really liked the vibe in Xi'an. And um, yeah, I, I, I decided to stay longer. And so I, I, after the first year in Xi'an, I moved to Beijing and um, spent another four years there or so. Yeah, Beijing um, is the capital, um, and there's definitely a lot of uh, industries there. Uh, what were you still teaching English, or what were you kind of working there on? So when I first got to Beijing, I was studying Chinese at a university at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Okay. So I had like a year long scholarship to study there. I still taught a little bit of English on the side to um, just to earn some money. But yeah, I st- spent a year studying at the university. Then I worked for a while at a, at a Chinese TV station and eventually got into uh, journalism and became uh, the China correspondent for the Huffington Post. Oh, wow. That's very cool. Um, and how long were you with the Huffington Post and uh, representing them? So I was with them for two years. Okay. And yeah, it was about, I, I had some, uh, you know, Chinese, it can be hard to get a journalist visa in China. So I spent about six yeah. months back in California waiting for a journalist visa. And then I was kind of on the ground for the Huffington Post for, for about a year and a half. Okay, interesting. And then uh, what what areas did you study uh, or actually cover, excuse me, uh, did you cover, because um, in your book, when we'll go to uh, lunch shortly, um, you cover a lot about technology and entertainment and other various industries what like what uh, for the Huffington Post did you have any specifics or you just were the main correspondent for the entire country of China yeah so I mean I was I was the first correspondent for China for them and I was the only correspondent for China for the Huffington Post (laughs) Um, so you know theoretically that's everything Uh, obviously that's impossible and it was also it's kind of an experiment for them it was it was uh, technically my job was with the World Post which was like a partnership between the Huffington Post and this um, think tank and uh, while I was out there and, you know, they'd pay my salary and stuff, I didn't have any sort of bureau or staff or support out there. So it was really just kind of me on an island. And it was kind of like, you know, go go do what you can. And so partly because of that and partly because of what I felt was sort of missing in American coverage of China, I spent a lot of time focusing on sort of um, kind of grassroots stories Um 
about everyday life in China, about, um, you know, youth culture, youth life, uh, touch. I was always interested in sort of the politics and economic side of it, but I'd usually look for sort of an angle on that that would tell the story of like one person or one city or, you know, find some kind of interesting, uh, cutting in point for topics like that. Okay. So, um, yeah, that that was kind of my, my deal over there. Nice. Nice. And then, uh, so let's, uh, I know you, uh, immediately after you've come back to the U S, uh, what do you end up doing? Uh, and then when did you write your book, uh, the Trans-Pacific Experiment? So for those who don't know the Trans-Pacific Experiment, just on a, it's an incredible book about how China and California collaborate and compete for the future. And it's a really cool image of the Great Wall and the Golden Gate in front together combining, like it's a bridge between East and West, like literally the, the um, so uh, it's a really fascinating read and we could go into details there, but what, like, when was the time frame and all that? Yeah. So I, I sort of first got the, I, I got the idea for the book and started doing the initial research for the book back in 2013. That was when I was back home in California waiting for my journalist visa to go back to China. And so, yeah, I was like a China correspondent for the Huffington Post, but I was based in the Bay Area. I was in Palo Alto and San Francisco. So I just started kind of yeah. looking around and looking for stories that I could do about China in the Bay Area. And I just found a lot of interesting, growing connections between California and China. So, you know, you had Chinese investors and Chinese engineers showing up in Silicon Valley. You had a lot of Chinese students um, showing up yeah. at California universities. And as I kind of put all these threads together, Hollywood students, um, you know, technology, etc. You yeah. sort of realized that California was in this really unique place as a kind of a, a middle ground between the two countries and a place where a lot of new and interesting sort of experiments were being run in some way. You know, the um, for a long time, U.S.-China relations was this very sort of either abstract or very high level thing. It's, you know, something that happens between presidents and between Fortune 500 companies and factories it was kind of very felt very distant. And what I was seeing, especially in this sort of 2008 to 2018 period, was that U.S.-China relations was kind of coming down to the ground level. It was it was happening in the ways that ordinary people live their lives, in the ways that, you know, immigrants and students and engineers were really kind of integrating these two places in a new way. And California was kind of ground zero for it. California was the top destination for Chinese students, the top destination for home buyers, the top destination for investment, all this stuff. So we yeah. sort of started following those threads back in 2013, went back to China, worked as a journalist, followed them some more. And when I moved back in 2016, I sort of went like uh, full-time or pseudo full-time on writing the book um, for the next couple of years. And that's what I ended up focusing on. Got it. Got it. What is, um, what does it mean? The, Trans-Pacific Experiment. What does the title mean? It's a, there's a chapter about it, but it just, it'd just be great to just yeah. explain that to everybody. Yeah, I mean, it's the idea that in this very you know unique period of time, about a decade, 2008, 2018, the two superpowers and their citizens and companies were running a, an experiment in like a new way to do superpower relations, a new way to do superpower diplomacy. Um, in that, you know, during this period of time, normally we think of like, okay, you know, education policy, that's like the, the sure. federal government or, you know, that's the Chinese uh, central government. But in this period of time, really, you know, the, the most important people in kind of U.S.-China education 
were people like the president of the University of California system or the president of UC Berkeley, the people who are kind of deciding, you know, how many Chinese students to admit, how to try to integrate them, um, how to shift the school and the curriculum to kind of adapt to this new uh, trans-Pacific set of exchanges. So, yeah. you know, you had a lot of these local actors. Sometimes it was university presidents. Sometimes it was mayors who were out there looking for Chinese investment for their, you know, small town in California mm. or, you know, in technology policy. Now, like U.S.-China technology policy is all very, you know, the, the federal government plays a really big role in it. It's really kind of in the trenches of that stuff. But for a long time, the most important people in U.S.-China tech policy were like Tim Cook, um, you know, Sundar Pichai at Google. These were the people who were really kind of making things happen and deciding how things should happen, um, sure. as well as their Chinese counterparts. So, yeah, to me, the Trans-Pacific Experiment is this is this experiment in, you know, what happens if we do great power diplomacy, but we do it at the grassroots level, or we do it at the company mm. level or the level of individuals? You know, it's not just presidents and companies. It's also, you know, the, the Chinese mom who, like, moves to California with her two high school kids to try to get them an education in a California school, you know, that's diplomacy too, or diplomacy happens there too. Yeah. So that's what I call the trans-Pacific experiment. Yeah. Um, it's interesting in your book. Uh, I mean, you, I'm kind of like, again, making this short for the podcast, but you you explain a lot of really interesting stuff. So one of the things I, I remember, uh, is the U S China relations, a lot of which was, uh, encouraged, in the late seventies, I think maybe even early eighties by uh, former president Bush, uh, senior president Bush, who was actually uh, an ambassador to us and China. And I believe mm. he really encouraged your relationship for the two to expand. Um, and, and granted, you know, the first industries were in, uh, you know, manufacturing and so forth, but like, uh, what, uh, what is fascinating about your book is, you know, in the, between 1980 and 2000, there was not many, uh, students from China from 2000 on, it completely changed. Um, and actually a lot of these universities, there's a startup, literally a huge portion of their revenue is helping, uh, students from abroad come to the U S or Canada, or, um, and basically, you know, help them, uh, get connected to any university possible. And a lot of the universities make their money from foreign uh, students because they pay a premium to go there. And a lot of which were Chinese students, especially in California from, uh, all the way from San Diego, to uh, here in San Francisco Bay Area in Sacramento, uh, all of the UCs were packed, Stanford to a certain extent. Uh, so it is interesting, and many of which focused on the education of STEM, which is the technology focus um, background. And, and a good amount of those students graduated, got jobs. But then there was this kind of threshold between, you know, these students trying to live the Silicon Valley dream, which is they have a startup idea that we would get funding, a lot of which were brushed off, not even, they were overlooked. Um, mm. by the VC community. And this is, my opinion, like really what it helped expand the Chinese boom in tech the last 10 years when the, a lot of these, um, you know, students from the, the China came to the US and then after graduating, go back with the best knowledge they had from working for a startup or tech company and building that ecosystem there. Um, so want to get your thoughts on like, you know, when did that really expand and how many students per year um you know, do Chinese students come to like California, for example? Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think you, you, you got it right in a lot of that description there. In terms of the numbers, I don't have them super on hand here. In general, there's usually, uh, at least as of a year or two ago, it was something like 300,000 Chinese students in the U.S. 
And I'm pretty sure around 50,000 of those were in California. Um, yeah. you know, uh, people can check those numbers themselves. Um, sure. that's, that's about the ballpark that we're looking at. Um, and yeah, I think we, you know, we saw a really big evolution in the kind of students that were coming and what their relationship was to the U.S. and China when they came. You know, back in the 80s and 90s, there weren't that many Chinese students um, and they were all of a certain type or the majority of them were of a certain type. They tended to be graduate students. They tended mm. to be in the you know science and engineering disciplines. And after they graduated in the U.S. or got their Ph.D. in the U.S., they usually stayed in the U.S. for a very long time, yeah. most likely permanently. Um, and that, that kind of reflects the, you know, the position of the two countries and the two ecosystems, tech ecosystems and science, uh, ecosystems at the time, you know, if you were a Chinese student in 19, you know, 94, and you got your undergrad degree in physics at, at Tsinghua university or something like that, like top Chinese university, if you wanted to work at the forefront of physics and you wanted to study with the best work with the best and, and also have kind of the highest quality of life, what made the most sense was to come to the U.S., get the best degree you can, and then go work for one of the cutting edge companies. If you went back to China, it was hard to find other people who were kind of working at the cutting edge. And, you know, China was just a, a significantly poor country in the 90s. You couldn't, mm. you know, you couldn't get a lot of the sort of luxuries or amenities, maybe being, you might just be middle class in America, but that quality of life might be significantly better than, you know, even being upper class in China at the time. So. Sure you know, it made sense that a lot of these folks would come, they'd get an education, they'd stay, they'd start a family here. Then in the kind of post 2008 period, it starts to shift, you start to have uh, more, you still have a lot of graduate students, but you have more undergrads coming to the US people coming to the US for their undergrad degree. Mm -hmm. um, they tend to come from wealthier backgrounds, because they have to pay full tuition as undergrads. And they, um, you know, they might not be back in the day in the nineties, they, these were all like super elite students. The ones who come after 2008, they might be elite students, but they might not be, they might just be normal students. Yeah. And you know, the country that they're leaving and the country they're arriving in are much different. The U S is dealing with the financial crisis or coming out of the financial crisis. Right. Yeah. China is booming. You know, there's a lot more opportunity to do cool stuff in China. There's a lot more opportunity to work at the cutting edge or to work in interesting creative industries. And so, you know, Still, a, a large portion of these students stay, especially especially those who do kind of uh, elite STEM PhDs. They still mm -hmm. tend to stay in the U.S. in very good numbers, but a lot more people might be heading back to China. For example, if you want to be a you know a researcher at a top university, maybe the U.S. is more attractive. But if you want to go found your own startup, that might be sort of if you're a Chinese person, that might be easier for you to do in China, or you might see more opportunity back in China. And so, you know, we've just slowly saw a shift in this balance from from that reflects kind of the situation in the countries, the type of people and and the sort of the development trajectories. Yeah, it's a fascinating. Uh, I mean, I think if you look back in the last hundred years, the last 20 uh, for China's growth is probably the fastest and uh, I, I could like record I've seen um, in any other uh country by, by chance, because the sheer number of people there, uh, if you look at the math, I think in the eighties, uh, and even reaching the nineties, like the, the wealthy was around 3% or middle class mm. was a little bit more than that. Now the middle class is about 85, 90% of China. 
Um, so that you're talking about hundreds of millions of people, maybe 800, 900 million people, middle class with a lot more spend. That's three times the population of just generally the United States. So, you know, it is fascinating to see like this massive boom of, uh, and then a lot of people like the younger generation were talking about the college students who come here. A lot of them actually um, left a lot of these small towns to live in the major cities. Now, what in the, there's over a hundred cities in, in China that are overpopulated and like basically over a million of population. Mm. Uh, it's so fascinating. Um, and the other thing I want to talk about is like, okay, so you talk about Silicon Valley best practices taken to China. I'm, I've been, it's, it's a really interesting place. I've been to, I've been fortunate enough to been, uh, I work for a company that's based in Beijing and Guangzhou. I've seen both of those towns and, uh, there is no real, in my opinion, like Silicon Valley and, and, and people say it's Beijing. Some people say it's Shenzhen. I think Shenzhen is more like the hardware base from your experience. What do you see as the, the hub? Or is it kind of spread out per industry basis uh, for the technology reasons in China? Yeah, I think it's I think it's much more spread out than the U.S. You know, obviously the U.S. is not just the U.S. tech industry is not just Silicon Valley. There are Correct. other hubs. Seattle is a hub. You know, Austin, Austin. is a hub. All that stuff. But yeah. at least for for a very long time, it was very clear where the sort of heart and center of the tech industry was, and that was. Uh, Silicon Valley, at least for, let's say, information technology or, or software. Um, right. In China, it hasn't been that clear. It, uh, you know, mo- I'd say during much of the time that I was there, Beijing was probably the, the primary hub. But you've got Alibaba in Hangzhou, you've got mm-hmm. Tencent in Guangzhou and in Shenzhen. And so it's almost like it'd be like if Google, Facebook and uh, and Amazon were all in three different places, you know, Amazon's in Seattle. But it'd be like if, if Facebook was in, um, you know, had been founded in Austin, had grown up there. And, you know, that's that's a geographic dispersion in the U.S. I think it's even maybe more interesting in China because of China's industrial manufacturing base that has proven so important for a lot of its industries, but especially anything to do with hardware. You know, mm. in the U.S., when people want to build hardware, there's not really a um, it's not really a hardware hub of the United States, or at least a digital hardware hub of the United States. Well, technically, it used to be why that the name Silicon Valley right. comes is the hardware chips they used to have them in the heart of like Sunnyvale or Santa Clara. Right. Uh, right. National Instrument was there. Uh, who else was um, like off the top of my head? AMD used to be there. Intel used to be there, and to a certain extent, even uh, Austin. Like the tech hills, they called it, uh, and the chips and Dell uh, making their. So, yeah, I mean, it used to be. Uh, it just kind of over time has shifted uh, a lot of which was sent abroad. Uh, you know, the yeah. and you mentioned like Apple and Google. Yeah, of course, many of the devices, especially the smartphones, are built abroad, um, which is interesting. Actually, I've looked at most some of your most recent tweets. You're, you're working and you've talked about uh, how the US is trying to encourage hardware to come back. And I've noticed uh, Phoenix is trying to be a hub for manufacturing. It's really fascinating to see that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. The U.S., you know, yeah, it, when, when, it, when hardware was chips, we were, we were uh, for a period of time in the U.S., we were on top. And that is, you know, that, that's the roots of Silicon Valley right there. Um, in China, the hardware ecosystem or the South China Pearl River Delta region, it's, you know, it's, it's a much more diverse set of hardware. They do everything down there. Um, mm. all kinds of robotics, all kinds of traditional manufacturing, and then trying to turn that into smart manufacturing and then turning that into Internet of Things devices. So 
that does have a kind of like a real world gravitational pull that I think helps to kind of keep trans tech industry dispersed. And, you know, I think honestly, if, if you're just thinking about it from like a social perspective, I think it's kind of a good thing to have your, your, one of your biggest booming tech and your biggest booming industries dispersed across the country. I think a lot of Silicon Valley's kind of uh, woes or the San Francisco Bay Area's woes are because it's so concentrated. There's so much wealth and investment in this one industry in this one place. So, yeah. And um, it's decentralized a lot because of, uh, you know, COVID yeah. and talent. Uh, you know, there's only, there's, I think they're capped. There's only so much you could do. The, the wealth, it's, it's pretty expensive here. So yeah, I mean, that's yeah. why they're going to uh, try to encourage tech on a more decentralized level. You want to live in a place like Bend, Oregon, uh, right. or somewhere else you can now. Um, especially in the software side, I think hardware is a little different. Like you mentioned. Right. Right. Um, so, and then, you know, we're talking about tech and to me, like, let's talk about the big companies and the, the comparisons. So the, there's Fang, which is Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google versus like Bat, Bats, which is like Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent and Xiaomi. You know, um, in, in your book, you mentioned that the, you know, it, since like the web uh, internet uh, since like 1998 and on, We've had about 30 years now of the web internet companies, maybe more like the last 20 with Google and less with Facebook and so forth. As right. far and Amazon, you could say probably the same time frame. Um, as far as um, the Chinese companies, it's it's uh, 10 years now, probably a little bit longer, uh, and they've doubled. It, it, basically, their speed is just growth has been like a lot faster. Can you uh, you know explain like? What that means that they again just to reiterate was like based on best practices and seeing what we have here and then there are obviously some you know blockages for some of the U.S. companies trying to work in China so a lot of which the, you know there's opportunity for like a company like Baidu to launch and do become the search engine there versus Google. Yeah, um, you know they grew these these companies grew out of kind of different soil and they and they emerged in very different environments and i think that affected how they you know what they became uh okay uh, you know the u.s companies the the fang companies that you listed most of them emerged and kind of spread very quickly globally when there were not really serious global competitors in other places you know That's google true. it's a very sort of um at least you know at the beginning is very light touch product it's just a search engine you don't need to sort of adapt that to every country. And back in 2000 or 2002, whatever, there were not r really many serious competitors outside of the U.S. Google was fighting with Yahoo. But right. basically, when sort of Google won that, it sort of won the entire global market except for China um, and mm. you know maybe a couple other places. I think Japan... Japan or Korea had an alternative, Russia, I think, as well. But basically, it, you know, a lot of these American companies caught fire, spread globally, achieved kind of global dominance or almost monopoly status um, very quickly. And I think that kind of feeds into their sort of idea and ideology as a global company. The Chinese companies, these alternative or these sort of competitors to the American companies, they grew up as the kind of underdog trying to fight off the, you know, the, the big foreign dominant juggernaut company. Um, so, you know, Baidu competed fiercely against Google. Uh, it's a little more, uh, less clear whether Tencent competed fiercely against Facebook. You know, Facebook was gone by the time that uh, something like WeChat came about. But I think that... True you know, the U.S. companies kind of came to this almost like hegemonic global status very early. 
And that made them sort of behave the way they do. They create one, you know, one pretty uniform product that they distribute globally, whereas the Chinese products succeeded either because of protection from the Chinese government or because they really localized and adapted their services to Chinese users in a way that Google, which just wants to make one search engine for everybody, couldn't really afford to do. Um, so I think that affected a lot. I think now, you know, we have a lot of Chinese companies trying to go global with differing rates of success in lots of ways. Um, and I think for some of them, it's partly because, you know, they're, they are so sort of thoroughly adapted to the Chinese market that simply taking that and then trying to move it over to, you know, Indonesia or something like that might not be as easy as Google, which kind of made its inroads very early. Um, so but now yeah, they are, but now they're, I mean, like, for example, uh, I represent a company that's based in China, um, Mavista Group and Integral, and, uh, they have expanded because I think at some point they realize that, um, you know, if they've captured all, all of, uh, most of the consumers in China, you know, what's next. Uh, and so the next wave would be through APAC, which is the top 12 markets in Asia Pacific. Um, and to a certain extent, they come, uh, across to the West and do business in, you know, Americas and in Europe for that matter. So there is, and, and they, obviously the biggest poster child right now, um, speaking of a big company by dance is their TikTok product and how they, it's like, it's the fast social network in history. They have basically leapfrogged above Facebook and their products of Instagram and Snapchats. So it's definitely interesting to see um, this yeah. involvement uh, from, you know, they were only specifically WeChat still, you know, as a Tencent product is still primarily based in China. There is a lot more global users there um, using it. Um, so, you know, I, I personally yeah. see like there is, there's an expansion and openness to doing so, but correct. I mean, uh, when you know a lot of tech companies want to go to China, and specifically in the industry I work in, in gaming, uh, first of all, you you need to you know translate it in Chinese, even though there's more English speaking people in China. Uh, and then there's certain rules and regulations, which primarily is like you know you get you get a approval to get your game, but it's the biggest gaming market now. It's surpassed America and Japan as the biggest right. one. Uh, it's over thirty billion dollars a year annually. Um, and yeah. in mobile alone, it's like half that 15 plus. So, uh, it's really fascinating. This has literally just happened in the last five years in mobile. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody has a smartphone in China and the, the first, um, so I also one experience, I don't know how, uh, you, your, you know, your book kind of covers a little bit about AI and robotics. And one of the things, uh, I'm a big believer more also of pra uh, practical use cases and consumer use cases. So for, when I went first time to China in 2018, um, I was at this, uh, it was an Eastern East Beijing mall at the Starbucks reserve, getting coffee in the morning and I'm paying in yuan cash and everybody's looking at me. And then <laughs> the, the people who were serving me, like were taking some time trying to understand how much to give me back. And I'm like, wait a minute. This is the first time ever I realized that I would never experience this before, but like everybody's looking at me like, oh, tourist. And I didn't realize why until then I stepped back and saw the next three to five people pay QR code and WeChat pay. Right. And then I went to the grocery store. I saw that and I was like, wow, they're way ahead of us when it comes to seamless experiences in tech, uh, especially like it's digital payments and so forth. I mean, we're, we're a little bit better now with Apple pays cash app and, and Venmo and many others, but still nowhere near the seamless experience. What are some experiences you've seen as a consumer level um, and product level that is, uh, 
as good, if not better there that we could learn from? Yeah. I mean, I think the, one of the early ones that like, you know, other than I think WeChat, that example is kind of uh, very well documented. One of the ones that, that I really enjoyed a lot while I was there um, towards the end of my time there. And when I started coming back to China after sort of 2016 to 18, when I was traveling back to China from the U S was okay. the explosion in the, in the shared bike industry there. Oh, wow. Some yeah, it's a, that. yeah. It's a kind of a classic Chinese tech tale in that, it's an industry that had a novel innovation. It took off and exploded super quickly, tons and tons of investment, kind of like a chaotic scene. So people who don't know this or didn't see this, basically, you know, China, Chinese companies sort of invented the uh, scan a QR code and unlock a bike that you can use to go anywhere in a city model. And this, you know, eventually migrated out to other parts of the world. In the U.S., it basically exists as like the scooter business, um, including some Chinese companies. But in this period of, I think it's 2017, 18, basically 16 through 18, you had this explosion in shared bikes all over the cities, um, at least the big ones. And at first it was awesome. (laughs) I loved it. I was going back on like research trips and stuff like that. And it just solved so many problems for getting around a Chinese city. Um, you could just, you know, oh, I just got off the subway and it's like three quarters of a mile to this place I need to go. Just hop on a bike, go there. Um, or if I just wanted to kind of cruise around uh, like some of the canals in Beijing in the evening on like a nice summer evening, just pop on a, you know, a shared bike, ride yeah. it. It was cheap. It was great. I, I love that. Um, it also had its downside. It led to this huge sort of overpopulation of shared bikes where, There was so much VC money thrown at it and so many new companies. And they were all about just like throwing out tons and tons of product without really worrying about, you know, where these bikes parked, like who's managing them. You know, you had all these sort of bike graveyards, bikes piled up outside of doors that people needed to get in. Kind of a mess. Um, Mm. But it, you know, it kind of, it, it was a relatively novel idea, at least a novel implementation. It went through this giant kind of hype explosion and then downfall cycle within China. But then it also kind of slowly made its way out to to other parts of the world, mostly in terms of the scooter trend. People tried bikes in the US, but they kind of discovered those were maybe a little too unwieldy. Um, So the bikes sort of took a back seat for a while, at least to the scooters. And like yesterday, I got a text from my little brother um, who is uh, going to the Warriors game in San Francisco. And he was late going there from work and he was going to be super late. And then he just like, he's like, dude best use case for lime scoot just hops on a scoot like rides it over to the to the arena and gets to catch the game and you know there's no kind of clear you know oh winner loser did china innovate more you know it's it's not it's not that kind of black and white thing but it's a it's it was a cool example of watching a trend emerge in china kind of explode kind of fall apart but leave an impact and one that i think did kind of improve uh improve like urban mobility in some ways. Yeah. I, you make actually a good point about the bikes and, and how kind of, like a lot of the bikes over there um, and success they had turned into successful startups here with Lime, um, with Bird and many others. Right. Um, and now obviously the mega companies either acquired like Uber um, and or are playing with this. A lot of trends come from Asia and they become successful here. Um, so this, you know, for example, in in a gaming space, the the notion of free to play, where you can mm-hmm. play a game for free to a certain extent, and then 
um, you you pay to play basically to like upgrade your characters or your land and you could c- compete and play better. And, and so that actually started with a lot of games from uh, Korea, Japan, China, and then c- companies like Supercell um, out of Finland uh, basically amplified it uh, and made it more casual for the Western markets. Um, and then the next wave was like when WeChat exploded, uh, WhatsApp basically in parallel launched here in the West and just exploded too. And basically learning from what happened in Asia. Uh, I think WeChat was like around the same time as Line and Kakao, Line in Japan, Kakao in Korea. And then, yeah, you made a good parallel with the bikes. So, um, you know, a lot of times people think, oh, you know, a lot of trends happen in the West and they copied there. But reality, uh, there are some business models that actually happen in, in Asia and China that the US and the West actually like, you know, copy and do well as well. So, uh, I think it's reciprocal in that nature. I wanted yeah. to actually discuss, uh, you know, what you're doing now with the Carnegie, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Sure. Um, uh, and, you know, what are you focused on there? As well as, um, you know, what is the Marco Polo China? Uh, like, what was that? Is that like pre- previous? I think that was previous. Yeah. Right? So okay. uh, when I got back, I was working on writing the book. And um, okay. I was working part-time and then eventually full-time at Macro Polo, which is oh, the think tank, of, yeah, think tank of the Paulson Institute. Um, so there I started focusing more on tech, uh, more on artificial intelligence. Okay. And then this last year in October, I, I moved over to the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where I'm full-time now. And yeah, my research covers, um, you know, a lot of different aspects of China's tech ecosystem and sort of global tech trends. I'd say the focus is still on artificial intelligence. Um, but yeah, I, I do research, I write, I speak, and I, I'm trying to uh, launch some projects that I think will be pretty interesting looking at um, Chinese governance of AI, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, again, we're talking about the students earlier, uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm always fascinated by this, and I believe your book mentioned this, there's, there's only a couple hundred thousand engineers studying in the US at, in universities. In China alone, they graduate a million a year. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, there's a lot more population, and they have, uh, you know, extensive universities uh, like Xinhua uh, and others. Uh, what is your thoughts with regards to, like, you know, STEM uh, engineering education, uh, there are people like the organization like Code.org trying to encourage all the schools from elementary up to learn you know, computer science coding to other projects. Like what, what do you think you know, we should do here in the U.S. that's very comparable to what they're doing in China? Yeah, I mean, it can be tough to look at kind of aggregate numbers and of, of you know, engineers graduated and come away with too clear of a, uh, okay. you know, a, a takeaway, okay. I think. Big picture, yeah. China has a huge population, has a ton of people studying engineering, and that's probably, you know, that's probably a good thing for kind of just feeding into the sort of the trenches of its tech ecosystem. I think a lot of those, a lot of China's higher education, especially sort of engineering education, is still not great. Um, China's university system expanded very, very quickly. It, you know, not, it was not equally high quality expansion throughout. But, you know, they're kind of getting there. They have more, they have many more elite universities. They have many more good universities these days. Um, but just from kind of living there and watching the way my friends went through college and stuff like that, I don't, I don't immediately take, um, how to put it, 
you know, I think that a lot of those degrees are, are you didn't necessarily learn a ton. You could say the same about a lot of U.S. degrees, honestly, of course. Um, <laughs> but I think the problem might be more pronounced in China. Um, <laughs> I do think there's a lot of things that maybe is kind of that culturally that we can learn from China about the education system and whatnot. I think that just like on a deep level in America, we tend to think that being good at math or science is like an inherent trait that you can't really learn. And therefore mm -hmm. we have, you know, kids decide pretty early, like, Oh, I'm bad at math. Oh, I'm bad at science. Um, and you know, then kind of give up on it in a lot of ways. This, I, I was fine at math, but at some point I was like, no, I'm just not a math person. Because in China, I think, broadly speaking, the, the cultural understanding is like, you know, math is work. If you work more, you will be better at math. You could say that for okay. a lot of different things in China or a lot of different industries and, and talents and skills. But yeah, I just think in general, the the attitude towards learning and accomplishment there is a little bit more healthy in that way um you know in the u.s it's we we tend to put a lot of focus on inspiration and, and natural talent and being gifted and and stuff like that and i think that does allow for a lot of the kind of high-flying creative innovative things that we do but i just think as like a baseline as a society we we could try to shift towards a a, a different understanding that sees you know math and science and stuff like that is just something you, you if you log hours you're going to be better at it probably even good at it that's kind of a very, you know, hand wavy sort of cultural thing. But I, I do think it's pretty important um, for the U.S., you know, whereas China, maybe one of its greatest strengths is its huge population. In the U.S., our greatest strength is our immigrant community. The fact that we still attract so many of the best and the brightest to come here, usually for education, and then usually they stay for work. It just it is so, so clear in my research that um, where mm. I sort of quantify top tier AI researchers a very large majority of them did not grow up in the unit. The large majority of the ones who, who work in the United States did not grow up here. And, um, oh. you know, I think the single, the single best thing that we can do is, is just make uh, student visas and then maybe green cards or, or, or visas for work um, a lot easier for those kind of um, talented engineers and scientists. Yeah, I'm I'm a big component of that. I know there was for a while this uh, group of folks from Silicon Valley um, who used to go like from folks like uh, Dave McClure and even Chris Dixon, the Shark Tank, uh, you know, and the investor and, and many others uh, who used to go to DC and vouch for that um, to have like some sort of visa for for engineering and maybe it was almost like a startup visa basically. If right. you have an idea, come to the U.S., let's make it easy for you to build a company and team and everything like that. W one other perspective I have is like. You were saying like it's embedded in the culture for education, specifically with you know math and science. If 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 the U.S. Sim similar to what we did like after World War II, where everybody who had a job in manufacturing you could live a good life, it's almost like can can it uh, as a mindset change the system where the education level um, leads to like oh if you want to get into STEM like computer science you want to be a designer, the schooling starts earlier. So when everybody comes out like we we almost like the whole perspective instead of like. You mentioned a lot of these other educational programs, not to say they're bad, a lot of which you just kind of get out like, what am I doing in my life? Versus right now, there is just an immense amount of need for people of like STEM-based research, uh, you know, to get, get into like the technology field. So I don't know. I'm a little biased. I feel like that would just really help the U.S. 
uh, in the next 10 years, if more and more people from the very early ages learns these pro- projects and education. So, yeah. And speaking of the future, uh, I'm a big believer of like learning from the smartest people and, you know, lo- love your take on what you think about 2022 um, just overall. Uh, just not, like, and then long term, what do you see is going to happen? Then, in, in some parallels between the U.S. and China, and like, you know, the positive growth, like, what do you see happening there? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, uh, it's been a very rocky <coughs> few years for U.S.-China relationship, and I don't see it getting all that much better this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think in some ways uh, there was like a confluence of factors that made the last few years particularly difficult and some of those might be going away or you know being reduced at least uh it's good trump presidency was a was obviously a big deal in this arena um an election year covid china preparing for the olympics dealing with its own zero covid policy now china coming up on its own party congress this year that's kind of a lot of um very sort of high stakes both like social and political factors Mm. um I'm hoping that as some of those ease up, we get back towards a little bit more of a kind of calm and measured yes. approach to how to manage the relationship, not going back to the sort of old 2010 style, anything like that, that I don't think that's either good or possible. Um, but I, I hope that things just get a little bit more measured in that department. Um, on the technology front, you know, I won't make any sort of sort of solid predictions, but uh, I do think what I'm most focused on these days is China's emerging sort of frameworks for AI governance, how they're looking to, you know, manage the technology within the country, both on a technical level, you know, how do they sort of decide what type of AI models can be deployed or, you know, how to sort of audit or check AI models. I think that's a big deal. Um, And it's something where you know, the U.S. and Europe and other countries should should be sort of keeping a close eye on what China is doing to learn from it in different ways, you know, in the good ways and the bad ways. Nice. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, this has been exciting, actually. Like, uh, I can't believe it's already been like uh, 46 minutes. Uh, it's been really fun having you, Matt Sheehan, uh, talking about uh, the U.S. and China and specifically with the tech sector. Uh, learned a lot, you know, just to see like, what really happened? How did it amplify? Uh, you know, what are some parallels there between the you know the industries and, and some stories? Um, so it was great to have you. I hope everybody was listening and uh, enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, it'd be great to you know stay in touch. And you know, thanks again for being part of the show. Great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everybody. Bye bye.